Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Welcome to episode 28 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host Daniel Oyston and as always it's great to have you tuning into the show. Jonathan Prosser, Group GM Strategy and Growth at the Cronulla Sharks Rugby League Football Club is my guest for this episode And I can tell you that it is a very insightful look at the work Jonathan and his team are doing on the commercial front at the Sharks. And of course, Mark joins me for the usual chat about his most recent blog, which looks at something that is often front of mind for a lot of sponsorship and commercial managers, and that is how healthy is our sponsorship program. So Mark has set about building a framework that you can use to self-assess across key areas and aspects to get a sense of how healthy your program is. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome to the show. Hey, mate. How are you doing? I'm great. Are you healthy? I'm, I'm healthy. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here to talk about today is the health of a sponsorship program or a commercial program because it is something that keeps people up a little bit at night. They, it's, it's a front of mind concern, isn't it? It sure is. Um, we get asked that program, well, you know, the, that question all the time about people's programs, um, and, but, you know, often they frame it a little bit differently. So, you know, we often get asked, how do we compare to other organisations? And, you know, they want to know, are they doing better than other people or things like that? And, and Should they really be comparing themselves to others, though? No, I don't think so. I think that's the wrong question. I mean, know, it's, it's like comparing your health to, to mine as an elite athlete versus an aspiring athlete, me being the elite athlete. I would, I would not say aspiring, I'd say <laughs> has been. <laughs> My body is a temple and it's a temple in ruin. Yeah. <laughs> but you shouldn't really compare yourselves to others. Because so you, when you go to the doctors, the doctor doesn't try and compare you to a certain other people, do, do they? No, that's right. And But, you know, but benchmarking is one thing and, and benchmarking is, you know, how do we compare benchmark to others? But they're, they're sort of performance indicators. The, the, the question that they should be asking is, as you said before, are we healthy? Is our is our program in a good state, um, you know, for the environment we operate in? And um, sponsorship programs, you know, there are, there are certain elements of that that you can control and there are some that you can't. You know, you can't control team performance. You can't control p- public perception of the, if you're in the a sport. The market? If you're in a sporting environment, you can't control the public perception of that game because certain things out of your control happen. But the elements you can control will have a strong dictation over whether you are healthy or not. Of course. So to set the scene a, a little bit, you, you've you written a blog, which is the first half of a two-part series. Yep. We're going to take these two blogs, we're going to flesh it out a little bit into an ebook that people can download, um, but we've also developed a little online tool that at the end you'll be able to go through in your own time, self-assess your health and get a report back on how well are you doing across a number of different key areas? So there's four key areas, and they are? Uh, return on investment. Yes. Return on objectives. Yes. Uh, relationship management. Yep. And, and the internal structures. Cool. So the first blog that we're talking about today, it looks at return on investment versus return on objective. But you and I were talking just before we hit the record button that we should really not or, or explain a little bit more to people that, and, and you drew a circle and said that return on investment should be at the, at the top and it goes around to ROO and then goes back around to ROI. Just explain that. Yeah, I mean, return on investment is is a little bit more 
detailed than than you know what it looks like on the surface of of, of some of the stuff that we present. But it, um, basically, you know, companies invest in you; they get assets in return. Some of those assets are tangible, so you can have a tangible return on those. Um, but then there are always the non-tangibles of any partnership, which will result ultimately in hopefully investment coming back to their organisation and business through you know sales or um, brand value or something like that. So um, that's the whole return on investment piece is you know basically the objectives feed back into it. So you've got your in, your, your ROI; it's achieved through some tangibles. ROI comes into it, feeds back to ROI. That's try, what I was trying to explain. To you. Yeah, which is without a whiteboard too, mind you. Yeah. So, it, which is interesting because if you're working with a a partner and you start with you know helping uh, the the ROI and then go around to the return on objectives, back around to the ROI because that partnership. Uh, evolves and a business's objectives might change. You should always be revisiting that and almost, for want of a better phrase, be going around in circles with that process, shouldn't you? Yeah, and then you need to throw in the other two elements of our uh, study here, the relationship um, issues that they will impact heavily on the achieving of objectives and, and ultimate return on investment and then the internal ability for you guys to run a good program um, also then have a strong impact on that so when you you when you are looking at the health of your sponsorship program they're the four key areas that you know you can control that we've sort of identified and then we've gone through and sort of looked at five um, key measures that you could sort of track the health of those four different aspects all right so the four key pillars return on investment return on objective the relationship management and the internal mechanisms that you have let's look at the first key area return on investment what are some of the things we should be looking at self-assessing our health in yeah so the tracking and acquittal so the question you'd ask yourself is you know do we track and acquit when benefits are delivered and do so as they occur so not waiting till the end of the year are we are we monitoring and managing and measuring our program and our tracking and acquittal as it occurs very good so that's the first one. And we, yep. I think we've developed five in each of the four key areas. So overall, yep. this podcast and this blog and then the next podcast and next blog, we're going to cover off 20 yep. key points to look at. So the first yep. one was return on investment and tracking and acquittal. Yep. Second one. And it's all and it's all, what, what we're always talking about here is monitoring and managing. Mm. So um, I don't have to sort of go through that every time. Yep. Um, benefit utilisation. So do we have visibility of you know, whether benefits are actually being used by sponsors after you deliver them to them. Yes. Uh, the third point under the ROI, sorry, is the contract value. So is the sum of the benefits you're providing greater or equal to the cash and VIK dollar amount received from the partner? You need to be able to provide a, a tangible ROI at worst. Obviously, the, the non-tangible elements are the things that come into really drive home value of a partnership. But at the very worst, you need to basically provide value for money. Yep, very good. Um, Benefit status. So are we aware exactly of which uh, benefits have or were not delivered and those still scheduled to be delivered? So this is a workflow management piece. Um, It helps with your relationship management, uh, but it also, you know, helps you if you're monitoring and managing this ongoing. Things do slip through the gaps. Nobody's perfect. Being able to know what what has happened, making up for that, making sure it doesn't happen again, reducing risk. Very good. Um, and then, you know, investment is it on track? So, are we tracking ongoingly 
that we are providing an ROI. So again, you know, we talk about a lot of people who annually, even biannually do some analytics and measurement of their programs and stuff like that. If you're at worst case uh, providing return on investment tangibly, how often are you then measuring those non-tangibles so that you can actually be tracking the health of a partnership ongoing? Yeah. And, and I think the listeners get that it's not just about return on investment. You don't just tick things off and give it to yeah. people. But if you're not doing that as the absolute bare minimum, you've got a massive target on yourself, don't you? Well, you're going to have a short-term partnership um, and high turnover of your partnership program. Some people might, might like that. Some people might not be able to avoid it for, for other factors. But at worst case, you need to be providing a return on investment. Very good. So return on investment, are you tracking and acquitting? Uh, are you looking at benefit utilisation, contract values, benefit status, and is the investment actually on track? Second key area is return on objectives. What yep. are we looking at? I mean, this is where you're positioning yourselves as a as a business partner rather than just a cost centre. So return on objectives is, you know, you, you're becoming part of their marketing mix, which is a, a buzzword you like to, yes. to see. Well, it's not a buzzword, please. It's uh, chapter one of uh, Intro to Marketing. <laughs> yeah, righto. Um, Peter Kotler. He's wondering he's got any hair left. Mr. Austin. So point one there is objectives awareness. Do we actually know what the objectives are? That's you know, that, that's the obvious stage one of this, but often one that's missed, you know, and, and mm. this, this actually gets missed when you sell packages or there's a chairman's choice type approach. Or you you get so excited because the person's going to say yes, you just skip over this point. Yeah, you're setting yourself up for a fail, that's though, right. aren't you? Yeah, well, you can, you can sell – a good salesman will be able to sell a sponsorship regardless as if they know the objectives or not. They might not get the – the value that they could otherwise or they might but, but what they definitely won't get is a long-term partnership mm. um, so you need to know what the objectives are and what the goals are which is point two so what are the goals for each objective not just the overall goals of a partnership it's easy for me to say i want to sponsor x um, football team because i want to drive 100 times sales through my business that's a overall goal but how do you achieve that? So every single benefit that you have within that partnership need to have goals. And those goals aren't necessarily, you know, a tangible dollar outcome goal. They might be that you've got an EDM campaign and you're looking for some brand awareness. So you want to see that campaign opened and clicked through by 70% of the audience or that uh, social media sponsored post, you'd like it to be shared 5,000 times. Yeah, of course. Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. So we're aware of the objectives. We've set some goals around them. Um, objectives alignment. So can we say that in our um, the benefits in our relationships are aligned to objectives? So we, we know what the objectives are. We know what the goals are. But are those objectives then aligned to benefits which will help drive them? So, you know, if you've got – let's just look at a real simple – um, partnership. If your objectives are community engagement, networking, and sales, but you're taking signage and branding on, mm. you know, front of shirt stuff like that, that's a brand aware. They're brand awareness benefit pieces. They should be aligned to people looking for brand awareness, not for people looking to engage with the community and network. Of course, yep. of course. So we're aware. We've set goals. They're aligned. Activation planning. So are we involved in discussions about how benefits are being activated? So 
for me, this is about trust. So if your um, sponsor trusts you enough to involve you in how they're going to use the benefits, then you're in a really good spot there to help actually drive success through that partnership. And you're, you're in the driver's seat to some extent to, to help actually achieve that success. Because you're there as a bit of a steward towards the alignment of the benefits and the goal and the goals of the objectives that you've helped, as we spoke about in the early points, aligning and setting the goals, you're there making sure that they don't put an activation that is all about, I don't know, increasing sales when yeah. they really want to be doing something else with that activation. Well, more so, I actually see this as that you're, you're, you're a, a segment specialist. So that, you know, remembering that you're trying to position sponsorship as just a, a, a part of the marketing mix and then you're, a, you're, a, you're an advertising arm almost of that mix through sponsorship. So, and you, what you are, you're a, you're a specialist in the segment that they're using to mm. ach- achieve, cut through into the audience you're providing. And so... What you can do there is is really hone in on what works best within your segment. There's a few things that also then come to play there. One is you know what other partners are doing, so you can either leverage together to have you know group success, or you can avoid doing similar stuff because it might you know cloudy the waters and and provide less cut through for both. Also, you know what's able to be done. You know, so many times you have sponsors coming along and going, "Oh, I want to run a big you know." Um, go-kart race through the precinct of the of the footy match and, and you're like yeah that's you great insurance <laughs> that's fantastic but um you know we've got five thousand people that are going to be foot traffic through there and it's just not possible but we'll talk about relationships and trust further in the next blog and podcast but it just occurred to me that you sponsorship managers and commercial managers should really be pushing that positioning themselves as a segment specialist because I don't know, maybe nine times out of 10, maybe even 10 times out of 10, people are sponsoring and partnering with your organisation because you have a loyal audience, you have access to an audience, and you're probably one of the people in the organisation who understands that audience the best, and that's what you need to keep positioning to the sponsor so that they do involve you in those activation conversations. Yeah, correct. And also, you know, the sponsorship managers, commercial teams, they're kind of sit as the heartbeat of any rights holder you know you've got access to all different elements of the business to pull it all together you know in a sporting context you look at you know the the commercial team and having access to the high performance team having access to the community having access to the executive finance match day events you know everybody kind of can has a touch point through commercial Mm. so it's a really those people are often quite vibrant quite good connectors and and as you one of your favorite sayings is people do business with people so mm. a big a big reason sponsors stay with um the, the rights holders they partner with is not only because the goals and objectives and investment is being met but the people are good to do business with and so we'll touch on that further very good and what's the last point we should be checking our health on similar to the investment that the objectives are on track so are we aware if we're on track to achieve the stated goals of the objective this this really gets to the heart of of being able to to plot whether a, a sponsorship is on on a healthy track you know are you have you got goals against each objective and are you exceeding them if you're exceeding them they're getting return on investment they're meeting all their objectives they're in a good spot very good. So just to go through those quickly, return on objectives we had, we're aware of the objectives, we've set goals, we've aligned certain benefits that are well placed to help achieve certain objectives, we're involved in the planning of activations and we know whether the objectives are on track. Anything else to add? 
No, only that, you know, business is now taking control of 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 rights holders and sponsorship in terms of the practice that is, that is taken to, to manage it. You know, you, people are moving away from chairman's choice decisions. They're moving away from buying fixed set packages. It's all around how can we use this as a vehicle and a tool to help drive our, you know, company brand image objectives forward um, and how do we measure those ongoingly so that we can pivot if we need to. Do you feel a little bit healthier just talking about it? Oh, heaps. All right, go and get an apple. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. I forgot to say at the end of that chat with Mark that you can find a copy of the blog at sponserve.net and the second part will be live next week. We'll pull it all together into an ebook as well. And we've also put the online self-assessment tool up on the website already. So just head along to sponserve.net and go to the resources section. My guest for this episode is Jonathan Prosser, Group GM, Strategy and Growth at Cronulla Sharks Rugby League Football Club. And Jonathan's background covers three main areas, diplomacy, foreign affairs, public policy, and business, and sport. There are two parts to Jonathan's role. The first is the direction of the group, which includes the football club, the licensed club, real estate developments, and the social impact arm of the organisation, the Sharks Have Heart Foundation. And the second part is working on non-traditional growth. So this includes leading their in-house business growth services agency, and building strategic partnerships that contribute to financial longevity. So for those of you who are looking to develop income streams outside of the traditional sponsorships that you can attract, this is a great interview for you. Here's Jonathan. Jonathan Prosser, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. We've got two kickoff questions for you, two icebreakers. And the first is, this is just so that listeners can get to know you a little bit better, give you some free kick questions. The first is, if your house was burning down and you could only take one item with you, and that's apart from your family and your pets, what would it be? Okay, so this is an easy one. I recently moved house and this was the one item that uh, despite um, half my hockey team coming to help us move because we moved two doors down the street, (laughs) so we had to hand carry everything. This is the one item that I said, no, no, really, I'll I'll carry that. Um, And it's a... um, a handmade uh, tea cup or tea mug from Kyoto. Um, no handle. Um, and over there, I realized, um, watching people drink their green tea throughout the day, that it's certainly in that region, it's not the sort of tiny, little, elegant, almost espresso cup style cups, but it's a, a sort of a pottery, almost like a pottery pint. Um, so you can have a really good, large cup of green tea. Um, so there's something about about it, the way it feels, and uh, all of the sort of process that went into the making of it. So that's definitely the item. Very interesting. And so the second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? (laughs) So this goes way back. Um, A job uh, for my parents, but I believe I earned a pound, possibly a pound a week um, (laughs) for that which was um, delivering newspapers and milk um, to the elderly um, residents of a, a residential home or a nursing home. So I used to do a couple of runs with my two little containers, each that carried four glass pints of milk, which slightly ages me, explaining that that's how the milk used to come. Um, and then I used to go and do another run and pick up the various newspapers and drop them off to the, to the old people. Um, who used to quite enjoy seeing this uh, little chap come round with, <laughs> with 
supplies. Very good. So let's uh, let's fast forward into some of the more the more serious uh, career pathways. What what's been your pathway up to and your current role now at the Sharks? So three main areas. Um, the first is uh, diplomacy and foreign policy. So from quite a young age, I wanted to be a, a diplomat. I wanted to be a British diplomat. Um, so I pursued um, studying sort of politics, economics, and then sport was always there, uh, both on the business side and then taking part. Um, I decided to um, pursue that kind of international relations area, and that's what I studied at university in Scotland. Um, and then I did a lot of work experience in um, embassies, research bodies, uh, and a think tank. Um so really quite a broad area, um, for example, working with the, the head of economic development for the Kyrgyzstan Republic, bonus points as you can find it on a map quite quickly. Or spell it. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, so getting into that kind of, we, we worked on policy to do with economics, we also worked on policy to do with language. And that was really exciting because I was kind of doing research based in their embassy in London that then got briefed into the ambassador and went back to their parliament to help them uh, put together their policy. Um, so that's kind of one one kind of area. Then um, towards the end of university, I could just completely change my mind and thought I would go into the business world rather than that um, diplomatic uh, area. Um, I went into consulting. I joined Accenture. Um, we had a start group of 70 people, um, which was great fun. And... Um, Rather than the typical model of how quickly can I get to partner, um, I continually sort of moved sideways and really focused on the skills that I could build. So the typical consulting model, and quite right too, is to get you know really good at a small number of things. That's what consultants are for, after all. Um, I did a little bit differently and instead worked across everything from... Um, working around the marketing with the RBS Six Nations partnership uh, with Accenture through to corporate and business strategy, um, working with brands and organisations as diverse as a Lloyds Bank or Royal Bank of Scotland through to a Disney or the RFU. Um, so huge range in the type of work and also the, um, the industry. Um, so that's sort of the second area. And then the third area um, being sport um, on and off the pitch. So um, off the pitch in some um, amateur clubs in, in governance roles, uh, both in hockey and rugby union. Um, and then on the pitch um, in those two sports again, my sort of rugby union kicked first uh, and then my hockey kind of kicked and kept going for a while. So that became sort of primary focus. So all of those three areas, um, which, you know, if you ask probably my mum and dad years ago, they would have told you, oh, they're the sort of three things he's interested in. And they're sort of pursued at different degrees and times those three and um it sort of ended up giving me quite a quite a different perspective on things because typically the projects i work on or where i'm at my best are where those three things come together very good so before we jump in and 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 look at your current role let's set the scene uh, a little bit so i'm sort of swapping the logic of the questions around a little bit here but can you give the listeners a little bit of a a rundown of some of your key partners at the Sharks and maybe how long they've been involved with the club, just to set the scene a little? Sure, sure. Um, so just stepping back slightly and give a little bit of context on the Sharks as a, as a group. Um, we're obviously a football club. Um, 
football meaning rugby league, a sort of typical Aussie rule that I've learned that biggest sport in the state claims the rights to the word football. <laughs> um, so we're a football club, we're a, we're a licensed club or leagues club uh, with restaurant, bistro, gaming and uh, bars. Um, we're, we have a stadium, which again, for, for those are international, you think, well, of course you do. But in Australian sport, it's very rare for the club to actually own and operate its own stadium. Uh, maybe even unique that we have ours. Um, then we have a foundation, the Sharks Have Heart Foundation, which is the social impact arm of our of our group, of our organisation. And it's the vehicle through which we will take our already significant um, social impact work and community projects to a whole new level. Um, and then the fifth sort of pillar, if you like, is to do with real estate development. So the club is in joint ventures around residential and retail developments. So that's the that's the group. And obviously, when you ask about partners, you know, there's there's different ones in those different areas. Um, but around the football club, which I appreciate is what you were you were getting to, um, we've um, we've got a real range and diverse set of partners. So to name a couple of our a few of our majors, um, we have Southern Radiology as our sort of primary front of Jersey partner. That's part of the Capital Health Group, which is listed on the ASX. Um, our stadium naming rights partner is Southern Cross Group. They do facilities management and so much more. Uh, an incredibly incredible company that's really innovating uh, through technology and through their own business planning and modelling, uh, led by their CEO Sam Johnson. Um, wonderful partners of ours who we work really closely with. Um, Blades or X Blades, um, long-standing partner of the club. They're our apparel partner. Um, for the men and then recently have also come on board um, not only to supply the kit but to really work with us collaboratively to try and innovate around the provision of of, of performance clothing but also that provides suitable protection and performance um, for our women's team. We're the first NRL club to, to launch a professional women's NRL team. Um, Capital Bluestone are, uh, are, are uh, one of our other majors. They take the, the stern spot on the jersey. Um, the partnership is, of course, about so much more than that. They're our joint venture partner in the sort of real estate area um, and long-standing supporters and advocates um, of the club. So they're sort of the four um, of our biggest majors in that top category. Um, then we work very closely with Coates Hire, Crown Bet, Martech, um, VB as Carlton United Breweries. Um, and then uh, we move through a couple of other tiers of um, other organisations of different sizes of investment and indeed scale on, on their side um, from international business right through to, to local business. So we, um, we're a club that really operates that full book. You know, we've got a couple of international business clients who are seeking to grow more quickly in this country through working with us, right through to, let's say, some of the individual player sponsors who are local business owners um, in Sutherland Shire, want to be involved, want to want to have that support of the club and also see their business benefit. So it's a really broad book. Of course, that makes uh, sense. Oh, I was going to ask about... I think you've, you've you've basically answered the question because um, you spoke about the five different pillars in the organisation, but you split it between 
two parts. You've got um, the overall group, as you described some of those elements before, but then interestingly, you've got in-house business growth services agency. Talk to us about that. What does that mean? So um, of the of the five parts of the group, I primarily spend my time on foundation football club and license club, and in particular, um, projects that hit more than one of those entities. Um, the internal piece is something um, I've been working a lot on uh, since getting back from the Christmas break and um, have just recruited um, four new interns to come and, and work with me in this new team. So the brand new strategy and growth team um, is a organization working under the tagline of if it hasn't been thought of before, then it's our business. And the primary focus of the team is on delivering non-traditional revenue um, for any of the entities within that group. Um, we work in a sort of model of posing an exam question um, that can be pretty broad with plenty of space on, the, on a blank piece of paper. Um, and then just, just working on that in creative ways using different techniques to draw, draw ideas out of people and help them bounce off each other. Um, but it's effectively a bit like having a bunch of entrepreneurs or people that have experience of startups or business of different scales, but working within another organization. Um, and the reason for that is simply to drive greater revenue, not through some sort of great greed or anything, um, but we're turning around an organization that's had a pretty uh, rocky pass financially. That'd be a bit of an understatement, I think. Um, and so it's through doing things differently that we hope to accelerate that turnaround, which is already happening at an astonishing pace. So in, in step and in parallel with the traditional areas of the organization really optimizing, um, we're effectively building a totally new business uh, within the Sharks, which will generate new revenues through a variety of partnerships, uh, joint ventures, equity shares, uh, distinct businesses that we set up and ultimately end up exiting. Um, you know, a really broad remit to to uh, solve the problem, however we however we may. Um, the people that I've recruited, uh, an excellent bunch of of young people. Um, we have a uh, fledgling. Um, strategic partnership with the University of Technology Sydney, certainly the most innovative business school that I've been exposed to uh, in New South Wales, if not beyond. Um, so I've worked closely with them and we continue to do so. Um, and there'll be four, four new people coming in, working in two teams of two, um, taking these distinct projects of which we've got uh, 14 new businesses effectively to build, deliver, get them up and running, making money and then kind of build the growth plan for each individual business from there. Interesting. So, um, oh, sorry, go on. Mm, no, no, so I was going to say, but I hope I've answered the question. Uh, it's quite a different kind of approach. Oh, no, I think it's it's fascinating, and I wanted to ask about, because I think there's, um, I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but a lot to be said for saying, look, let's not just focus on how we do the same old things better how do we make more calls or how do we sign more of these or build more of x but let's set up a little team off to the side to go and look at new ideas and as you said new business but i'm interested to find out with those four people that you've um, recruited to join the team do they have 
a traditional sporting sort of involvement and background or have you picked people from from different areas that don't come with a preconceived idea about what it's like to work in sports administration? So they um, intentionally have quite different sets of experience, uh, interests, focus, and even the modules that they've studied. So one has just completed his MBA. Um, he's got really strong analytical ability and has also demonstrated a, a great propensity to be able to think really creatively um, through to a young man who's only just in school and is heading off to university um, and some of the ideas that he's <laughs> put together on paper already, um, you know, surprised me in a really good way. So some of them, uh, one of them, I think, actually yeah, only one of them is a sports management major um, studying an MBA currently. He's a second year MBA. Um, so it'll be a rolling internship model. So there will be you know, fairly high turnover, but intentionally so. So we benefit as the Sharks from getting really smart, young, highly motivated people. Um, and the offer that we have put to them is really quite unique. You could go and work at a, at a major corporate, and um, many of them have outstanding internship um, programs. But what they probably won't, you know, there's few that would be prepared with the right um, coaching and, and um, leadership, but there's still few that would be prepared to say, right, here's, a brand new business. It's scoped to this degree. Some of them not at all. Some of them have been built or even piloted. One of the ones we were talking about, we piloted and the pilot was a complete failure. We know it works elsewhere and the people we're working with have an, a very strong reputation. We know that we just didn't execute it correctly. So um, some of these young people will get the chance to actually build a revenue-generating business, have their name on it, and at the end of their time, as well as all the coaching and mentoring that go along the way, to have that on their CV and then to go back to university and, and what we're looking at is potentially then how do we build that into the course content so that sports management today, effectively we want to write a new chapter for what sports management is for tomorrow um, through this type of innovative type work. And those people will, have be able, will be able to say, I came in. I worked on this business. We built a new business within a major sports brand. And in the time that I was there, we successfully got revenues to X. And we've scoped it for the next three years through a business planning model to get to Y. Now, I think for a young person to be able to say that and sit down in an interview later on in life, I think that's a pretty fantastic opportunity. And um, the four, four people who are coming on board are certainly very excited by that. Absolutely, and I think it provides a great opportunity to uh, address the, for want of a better phrase, you know, that tension with millennials where they think that they can always walk into an organisation and have a voice and have ownership of projects and contribute straight away versus those of us that have been in the corporate grind for quite a long time, expecting them <laughs> to learn their place and learn off us and be guided. So I think it strikes a fantastic balance. Well, thank you. And a lot of it, I think, is about getting a real blend. So what I haven't done is gone and hired four young versions of myself. You know, I've, I've picked people that really bring different, certainly I think I can work with, and they need to have that uh, empathy to what we're looking to do uh, and be, you know, sort of people that you want to have a coffee with, you might even want to have a beer with and you want to work with. But um, 
you know, I don't want four versions of myself. I want people that bring totally different um, skills and perspectives. And just in the early stages of our discussions, they're already demonstrating that. Absolutely. Sounds great. So before joining the Sharks, you had, as you said before, extensive experience at Accenture working in business strategy. You did have some, as you explained again earlier, some smaller and some volunteer sports administration experience, but nothing in professional sport. I'm guessing some seasoned sports administrators would have been competing for you um, for the current role that you've got at the Sharks. Tell us why your Accenture experience made the Sharks believe that you were the best candidate. <laughs> well, it's really a question for our group CEO, Lyle Gorman, and our um, CEO of our licensed club, Marcelo Velos. Um, they probably, when I cook up some of my more um, <laughs> wacky or different ideas, they probably ask that question themselves. <laughs> um, I think um, they both recognised that they wanted a different set of skills um, to come into the organization. Um, you know, Lyle has huge experience across um, numerous sporting codes uh, at an educational level, um, in, in governance. Um, he's on the board of Cricket New South Wales. Of course, he's largely known for all the amazing work he did in the round, round ball version of football. Um, and so he'd he'd seen a lot of different examples and models and um, the way it was put to me was that he was looking for something a little bit different. Um, and uh, I guess the breadth of my experience working in numerous sectors from health to retail to real estate um, to sports to entertainment to pro bono work with charities um, probably probably was a, an appealing draw card. Um, it's a bit like... Um, my role is, is very specific, but if things come up, it's a bit like having a utility on the team who probably has some experience of that or, or has in their network people who have. Um, so that's me really just sort of <laughs> guessing it's a question for them. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, it's that, it's that sort of breadth um, and ability to roll up the sleeves and, and learn quickly. I think they probably got from me early on that I was from the corporate world, not of the corporate world. So um, I'm not someone that sort of arrived at a, a smaller scale organization and, and, you know, kind of rolled my eyes or the sleeves rolled up and what needs doing. And yes, this may be entirely different to what I thought I was being hired for, which is always the case um, initially or certainly in certain <laughs> times of the day. But just a, a huge desire to just get on with it and be part of an amazing opportunity to turn around a incredible organization which pulls pulls on you know, the heartstrings of people like nothing else I've really seen. Um, I know from our past conversations, Daniel, I mentioned you know my love for Italian football, which was on free to air TV in the UK when I was growing up. And I've you know I often think about that and the San Siro in the hand where I looked up and there was a guy who didn't even watch the match and he was risking his life hanging off one of the top tier railings conducting the singing with a trumpet or something. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, wow, I would never see a degree of fan engagement like that. Um, but here I have. And it's kind of unique because of the, um, the geography of the area. This is the one big sporting organization in the, in the area. And if, you know, you might love tennis or you might love hockey or play rugby union, but you'll still be a mad sharks fan. And, and I think that's quite different. And, um, you know, it's no surprise that there's been some absolutely incredible stories, which 
literally moved people to tears uh, following the win. Not the, not just the fact that the Sharks won, but some of the amazing stories that came out um, afterwards, um, which I can share a couple of with you like, but. Yeah, well, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, um, I probably won't post the video for our listeners, but I might share it with you, Jonathan, on the on the email, and uh, we'll get to talking a little bit about the Sharks' success and and winning the competition last year a little bit later in the in the in the chat. But it moved me to tears. It moved my eight year old son to uncontrollable tears, where it was I didn't know, and we're staunch Parramatta supporters, but. I didn't know whether he was crying because he was upset that the Storm didn't win or that he was really happy that Cronulla won. I couldn't figure it out. That's how uncontrollable mm. he was. Like it was just a, it was an amazing afternoon. So yeah, it'd be great if you could share some of those stories and and link the passion of the club. Sure. So we we work under the sort of the tagline of the direct or the direction of being more than just a football club. Now that's very real because we quite literally are with our sort of five main areas and different entities but it's also a sort of a guiding principle um lyle's been very clear that um we're not actually here just to win footy matches we're not just here to win premierships we hear a bigger calling if you like hence the big focus on the foundation and and the amazing work that our community teams do so um because of that, I think it's kind of reflected in how people react. So the stories, um, yeah, there's a, there's a hundred sort of funny anecdotes about what this person said or how they were dressed and all this sort of stuff. But some of the really incredible things that came, whether people either wrote to the club or we, that we got told in person. One was a, a lady that spoke to Lyle, um, I think just a week following uh, the win. And this was just in a shopping centre. And um, she saw him and went over and said, I think this was in Westfield in Miranda, and said, oh, do you have a moment? He said, of course I do. And she said, can I just tell you that I've been married to my husband for X number of years, I think it was at least 20 or 30, and I've never seen him cry. Um, oh, wow. And after that game, uh, my husband, our son, and, and myself, she said, we're all sat on the sofa. Um, we watched the game, and um, we were all in floods of tears. And... She said, you know what that's done for us? Literally, not that she was saying that their <laughs> their relationship was in trouble or anything. That wasn't that wasn't the intent. She was saying, you know, this is it's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing. It's really brought us closer together as a family unit. And um, you know, when you hear stuff like that, it's it's incredible. And you realise that it is more than just a football club, and, and it's not just about. Um, you know, the amazing flair and the kicking and the try scoring and all that stuff. But actually, people are so emotionally engaged. Some people have waited their whole lives for this for this premiership title to arrive. Um, another one uh, was a, um, a family that wrote to explain that the grandparent in the family um, stayed up and watched the game and she was a lifelong Sharks fan, I think originally from this area, but then living with family up in Queensland. And... Um, she, uh, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing slightly, but I think they watched the game. Um, they all went to bed, and she wrote a small note which said something like, um, I've waited my whole life to see this moment, and I am so happy, and this has given me such satisfaction and purpose. And um, 
her family found that note the next morning and, and she was resting peacefully and had passed away in the night. Wow. Now, you know, that's powerful stuff. Um, and it, again, I just share this to illustrate that point of the really blessed and honored position we have to um, just for a period to guide a, an entity, a club, which has such power to um, bring about such positive change to people's lives as individuals and families and in the community. So, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really amazing place. Yeah, wow, that's some uh, some some powerful anecdotes there. And for the listeners, if you haven't joined the dots together just yet, maybe for our international listeners or even those Jonathan who are the highly uneducated and don't follow rugby league, um, for the Cronulla Sharks, <laughs> who the Sharks entered the competition in 1967 and finally won their first premiership last year so it's now white february so it was about five months ago jonathan a lot of people would be under the impression that winning a competition at any time whether it's your first one or it's you know your 10th provides a lot of energy into the commercial program and that can easily translate into attracting more sponsors and growing your program is that true and have you leveraged that success a lot or has it been more about well we're more about the business and how we help people so it's really just it's great we won the comp but it's business as usual and we've got a path and we're sticking to it so a little bit of both um the from my time speaking to colleagues at the governing body the nrl the guidance they've given me is that um from the trends and the data analysis that they've done, typically those that win a premiership see a major commercial benefit, not the season following the win, but the season following that. And that's typically just due to contractual um, life cycles and when things are coming up to expire. And therefore, when you're in a position to renegotiate, your brand's bigger, better, has that extra degree of prestige. Um, the interesting... Um, one for ourselves, and uh, this isn't an exclusive, you know, this has been much publicised in the Australian press, um, has been our discussions with our, our major front of Jersey partner, Southern Radiology. Um, they've had some challenges on their share price of their capital, um, sorry, their parent company, Capital Health. And so uh, they had asked us if we would, in a gentlemanly manner and spirit of the partnership, uh, test the market uh, to see if there would be a major who would like to take um, the front of jersey of the champions, which is a pretty unique proposition. There's not not many opportunities for a major brand to do that. Um, the jersey performs as an asset, and clearly it's about more than just a logo on a jersey. Um, but the jersey performed incredibly well, and the Nielsen Sport, formerly Repcom, um, data on valuing that for media exposure had it as the fifth most valuable football code asset in Australia. Um, which is, which is wonderful, obviously, covering Australian uh, rules, AFL, Rugby Union, Rugby League, and um, the round ball version of football or soccer, <laughs> if you might choose the American term. Um, so a really strong performing um, asset, um, a partner who's got some challenges. Um, and so we, in, in good spirit and in good faith, we've been in the market testing that proposition by we... Um, I mean, the, the commercial team and our, and our group CEO. Um, so it's an interesting um, opportunity. It's an interesting conundrum. We continue to work uh, with some radiology very closely. Um, 
So it's a bit of a watch this space, um, really, I think, to answer your question. Yeah, and I was thinking the other day that Sydney must be one of the most competitive sports sponsorship markets in the world. So that's based loosely on the number of high-profile teams um, and Mm. and the population. When you're going out and you're testing the market, what's it like in what I think is a pretty competitive market in Sydney? So I think that we roughly compete with 54 other top-level clubs and organisations. And I think I'm right in saying that Australia is the most densely populated elite sport market. Um, or if, if it's not, then it, it certainly is per capita. Um, we have a, a strong economy here in Australia, but it's not huge. Um, and I think it would be fair to say that there's not a huge, and this isn't critical, this is sort of just looking at the data, there's not a huge number of really financially sound, really financially sustainable and strong professional sporting organizations in the country. Um so you think, well, is there enough to go around? Everyone makes money through broadly six things, um, sponsorship, ticketing, hospitality, um, membership or season ticketing. Um, then there's, of course, money from central distribution, largely meaning, meaning uh, media money that flows in through the governing body. Um, and then, of course, there's merchandise and retail operations. Um, so this sort of gets back to the original point of why are we doing things so differently? Well, it's not through some kind of ego and desire to just be seen as innovative. That's not the that's not the motivation at all. It's because fifty five elite level club, clubs and organisations go head to head in a not huge economy, um, all competing for effectively the same marketing dollar, and few um, able to really be outstanding and financially sound so sort of simple conclusion well clearly we must do something differently because there may not be enough to go around um the sydney market specifically um you know hugely densely populated and our code our code alone then you add in two outstanding football or soccer teams um plus plus rugby union uh, plus of course numerous other codes um i'm really intrigued to see what the the wonderful um, happenings going on in professional women's sport, how that links into this discussion. Does that mean that instead of 55, all of a sudden you build out to 65, 70, 80, all competing for that same dollar? Um, Or does it mean there's more whole of club level agreements, much like I mentioned the wonderful um, support and work that we have with Blades, which has long been around our men's NRL. And now we're starting to work and collaborate around our women's general. So, um, yeah, it's certainly an incredible, incredibly tough market proposition. Um, hence the need to innovate and do things differently. And then, and then the wonderful, uh, introduction of women's sport in the professional era, which is just so fantastic to see and where I think Australia as a country is, is already leading the way internationally and, and quite rightly so. And I think we'll really kick on through numerous codes. But it'll be interesting to see how that influences and affects the market as well. Yeah, I agree. It'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out commercially. Jonathan, there aren't many teams that come to mind that haven't had 
a scandal or two over the years, and the Sharks are no different. When something unsavoury comes to light, how do you manage it? How do you manage it with the sponsors? So um, I think the first thing I'd say is um, sponsors, and this isn't to be um, pernickety, but sponsors isn't really a word we use. We talk about partners. We talk about partnerships. And that really kind of then drives, well, how do we handle things like that? Well, if you were in business with someone and a scandal happened on your side of the fence, well, the first thing you probably need to do is pop over with a cup of tea at daybreak <laughs> to the other side some, of the fence and say, yeah, this has happened and um, this is what we were thinking. We want to sit down with you and, and work through this because we're partners. Um, so I think that the a high degree of empathy is always needed. Um, I think that being really proactive, giving people um, wherever is possible, and obviously there are often constraints around this due to uh, integrity investigations or other code-specific things, um, giving our partners as much information as possible so they feel informed and they're getting the news you know, prior to the media, etc. cetera. Um, and I think that listening is, is a really important piece too. So, um, you know, we will always get feedback on how you handle these things. Um, and, you know, last year, without going into specifics of certain certain events, you know, we had feedback from um, significant and major partners. And we really have listened and actually got right into the process level with our Sharks media team, um, headed by Jessica Goddard and um, the commercial team, with Lisa Hurden and, and Rebecca Hughes, really getting into the detail of, okay, so what are the process steps we could we need to change, we need to add, so that we can handle this better and really take on the feedback from um, from our partners. So, on a much more positive note, is announcing new partnerships, and you recently announced a partnership with Japan's largest tea producer can you give us an outline of the partnership because it isn't and i am contrasting the two words deliberately here an outline of the (laughs) partnership because it isn't a traditional sponsorship is it that's right so i talked before about the new strategy and growth team under the remit of if it hasn't been done before then it's our business and there's really a if you like a left hand and a right hand to that the right hand is seeing opportunities to grow within the existing business. So, for example, working, collaborating with the media team on a, on a specific opportunity or area. And in the left hand, which is where we'll look to spend you know, the lion's share of our time, is on building out these new revenue-generating businesses. Now, the first one's already built um, and making money for the sharks and, importantly, making money for our partners. Um, and this was not something we cooked up on the whiteboard in isolation. This was something we built specifically with ETOM, having sat and listened to their real needs. So having really understood their goals, their strategy in the Australian market, um, we then designed a way of working together, um, which was really quite different. So rather than an approach of, okay, I understand what you're looking to do here. I have the following things on this menu to either sell you um, or to somehow help you. Instead, we said, right, well, you don't, you're not looking to brand, 
branding. You're not looking for the, some of the softer marketing things, which clearly can be can be measured. But what you really need is strong um, revenue growth. Um, so the way we built the partnership was based purely on that, um, and that is our has become the first of our business growth services clients. So in that space, they really are a client um, rather than a rather than a sponsor to. to to find the contrast. Um, so with, I won't go into the details of the fees, of course, um, but there is a professional services fee that a client pays to, if you like, come on board. And then we build a bespoke model with that client to continually drive both organizations and incentivize both organizations to push for greater sales. Um, the simplest way of summing that up is that um, we, we've got involved in the tea business <laughs> but how did you identify that opportunity to, as you put it, get into the tea business? This one's a bit harder to answer, really. Um, it's one of those things that that just sort of was an idea that sparked. Um, I phoned them. Um, I had a couple of discussions, and um, we kind of went from there and, and started building something really unique. Um, so I can't, I can't really be specific on it. It was a really blank piece of paper type start point. Um, and I think that the, the way we approached it, um, both on a business side and also on a, if you like, on a cultural and an etiquette side, was really very different. So our first meeting, um, I hired a Ryokan, which is a traditional Japanese inn. There's one in uh, Balmain in Sydney. Um, and we sat together on the tatami floor, uh, cross-legged at a, at a small table. Uh, we took tea together. Um, we went through the various formalities, and then we started working together on how this might work. Um, much later on, um, representatives from the company pointed out to me that in, even in Japan itself, as well as in the U.S., and then in Australia, no one had ever really, no organization had really approached a first face-to-face meeting like that. Um, and so I think that's how we really showed our point of difference to not just kind of getting online and reading some etiquette, um, YouTubes or something, but actually having a real deep interest um, in the culture um, and building a partnership based on, based on that mutual respect and, um, and real interest. It's interesting, and and I'm actually surprised that they, they've mentioned that nobody else has really taken that approach. Are there are there any other cultural considerations or sensitivities that you needed to, and you probably still do, navigate in the partnership? Is there anything else that's interesting? Um, some some of the real basics, which um, I'm sure most people will be aware of, is in Japanese culture, everything is for a reason, um, and it. For a Westerner, it's fantastic because it actually forces you to slow down and be very deliberate in your movements, in your actions, uh, not in a kind of overly formal or precise way. Um, if you sit with a Japanese person and, and eat a meal, you'll notice, I'll quickly pick this up, You um, there's a real skill in not just using the chopsticks, but kind of using them and immediately putting them away. <laughs> because it's all to do with um, a sort of a degree of elegance. That's probably not the, the wording that 
that a Japanese person would use, but that's the kind of the respect that I have for it, and that's how I see it. I think it's a very elegant culture. So I've learned to, um, I'm actually left-handed, which um, <laughs> has caused a fair bit of amusement. Um, I met a different Japanese person the other day that said, yes, he was once left-handed, but he isn't anymore. Oh, wow. Um, you're, you're not really left-handed in Japan. Um, you just haven't learned have yet. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it, it can have a bit of a negative association. So there's a bit of intrigue there. Um, you know, I think um, more Western cultures sometimes left-handedness is sometimes tied, perhaps a bit stereotypically, but tied more to the creative, the arts, that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, fortunately, one of, one of my brothers taught me to use chopsticks and he's right-handed. So it took me ages and everyone thought I was really a bit stupid and didn't understand why I couldn't do it. Um, and then sort of years later, we realized he taught me the sort of the wrong way for my brain, but now I can do it right-handed, which is it's good socially. Um, and I've sort of managed to up my speed from using the chopsticks to then kind of immediately putting them away or put, putting them down, um, because of that sort of um, etiquette, you know, you don't you don't sit kind of holding them. You're mm. ready to put them away. So some of those small subtle things, which, like I say, is not formality or doesn't create barriers, but you naturally, if you're open, you just pick them up. And it's such a such a beautiful and wonderful culture that it's a real a real pleasure to just get immersed in it. For what it's worth, I'm right-handed and I can't use chopsticks right-handed myself. So um, can you (laughs) explain how, and this is going to be a little bit of a leading question because I think myself and the listeners already understand some of these elements, but can you explain how the reporting on this partnership is occurring? Because... You know, I'm guessing is it's going to be pretty different from the normal sort of sponsorship partnership acquittal documents and media evaluation reports that you'd traditionally give a partner. Sure. So within the Sharks, um, the way we're working to put a degree of governance around the strategy and growth team is to say we'll run it for for a year and then we'll we'll baseline all of the projects and then we'll forecast from there. It's, um, I mean, it's pretty much impossible to forecast what this unit will generate um, in its first full year of operation in its fully structured guise with the right size of tin. Um, another way to describe that is if you're doing something totally different, how could the rules of the existing business possibly um, govern it in a good way? So we need to sort of just let it run and give it a bit of space, um, and then we'll put the relevant um, financial structure around it so we can really measure success and really drive its growth. Um, ultimately, the vision for, for the team is to be able to sit alongside one of the other major areas in the business, like, for example, membership, um, and achieve a similar level of revenue, but to have done it from all of these unique and quite different projects. So that's the shark side. And then on the, um, with the client, um, there's a, and it's always designed from the offense, and it's different with with each. Um, but there's the the hard revenue side, so it's a really simple scorecard. It's really um, how effective are the sharks in driving new revenues for the client, and there's a simple dollar sign scorecard, um, which is very easy to report on. Um, and then there's ongoing acquisition work together where we will look at 
other organizations, particularly ones where we have strong and trusted partnerships, where we can give a warm introduction, where we can go alongside, help facilitate and add, and add real value to, to both parties. Um, and then there is a softer side and how we measure that. Um, I mean, it may be, and I think the way we're working is we'll just focus on actually measuring the, the revenue, the dollar sign stuff, but then kind of just noting the data and the other things. So when the Honourable Treasurer of Australia, Scott Morrison, um, and I should add unscripted as well, when he says on national TV, this is one of the leading examples of business innovation in our country, um, you know, that's a really wonderful thing and great, to, great for us as an organisation to get that recognition. Um, that's the kind of thing that needs to be noted alongside the dollars. Um, we're not going to waste time trying to quantify it or calculate it. We'll just have it alongside in a sort of almost like the other side of the scales. Um, when Channel 10 did an exclusive news piece um, at the tea ceremony we conducted, which had various um, politicians, diplomats and senior business people, both Japanese and Australian, um, you know, some of the footage um, that went out on there in a piece that they called Samurai Sharks um, was really wonderful and really helped to, to differentiate what we're doing together. Um, again, we could certainly get the stats on the reach and all of that, but we try and just keep it simple. So we'll measure the hard dollars and then we'll kind of note and explain on the other side of the scale some of the broader media pieces. Of course, and you spoke about how uh, Scott Morrison said it was it was a great example of business innovation, which is a bit of a you know, guys, there should be more people looking at uh, innovative business partnerships like this. So, do you think there are many opportunities in Australia to develop similar partnerships, maybe even with Australian-based companies? And and if you do think that, do you think it's a, a case of accessing? more income from a partner, actually generating more income for an organisation, or do you think it'll move to splitting the pie a little bit more? I think probably both. Um, or to take the first part, yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you, you know, if you're sitting back running a, oh, probably not sitting back, but you're sitting bowled upright at your desk <laughs> at the helm of an Australian sporting organisation thinking, where's my next area of growth going to come from? Of course, you're going to focus on optimising all the traditional parts of the business. Um, but there's you know, loads of really impressive brands, clubs doing that, and it's still not um, delivering the right financial returns for them. And I don't mean from a greedy sense. I mean from a... Um, it's not putting the right financial framework and foundations to ensure the long-term sustainability of, of that organization, um, of which undoubtedly has a huge following and a great place in the community. Um, do I think that it'll be about existing partnerships or potentially um, splitting the pie, to use your words? Um, again, I think it'll be both. The latter, I think, is a, a really exciting area of of opportunity um, of the sort of 13 projects or new businesses that I talked about. Several are, will be joint ventures, equity shares, um, real partnerships. And um, if you're in a traditional mindset, you might say, well, hang on, why do I want to give away X percent of my equity or this is my idea? Um, 
but we we sort of quickly get past that mindset because actually I think you can scale more quickly with the right collaboration and the right partnerships um, and you get unique expertise. So as an example, um, we started working with our innovation partner, a company called Lakiba, um, who are based in Sydney, Melbourne um, and have a growing presence in London as well as having um, offshore development centers in India and, and in Italy, and are in Italy as well. Um, so we've worked very closely on with Lakiba on, if you like, the, the previously unexplored territory for a sports organization. Um, and we continue now to, to work with them, and we're going from some quite broad-brush strategic work that we did last year into two or three very specific projects Um one more around, the, if you like, the sports science area, one more around a um, fan engagement area, and one around further enhancing the experience that fans have um, in the whole life cycle of coming to a game and all the components of that involves. Um, so that's an approach that says, if we were truly in business together, how would we do this? And what are the unique skills that we benefit from? rather than an approach that says, um, how much of this pie can I keep for myself? Um, because we all know that that slightly archaic thinking, which people typically come at from a view of trying to maximize their long-term uh, revenue, really what that does is just disincentivizes their partner. Um, so, you know, you and I could put together an idea, Daniel, and you like push really hard because let's say originally you came up with it and I end up with less equity than I really want or need to focus due time on it um and then after a month you ask me kind of what i've done and i've told you i've spent like two hours on it <laughs> and you you quickly realize that what you thought was an amazing negotiation after a long arm wrestle actually you haven't incentivized your partner correctly and therefore he is spending a lot more time on other projects which he sees more value in. so yeah i think getting the the collaborations right and however that's structured in a simple MOU by literally building a new business and taking equity in it or just uh, a simple agreement which allows revenue shares to follow and to flow in whatever percentage I think that's I think that's a key and real real area of opportunity yeah I think it is a real opportunity for a lot of organizations to diversify their their income streams and you use the word sustainability as well but it's going to take a lot of you know, very focused, uh, almost mind shifting or thinking about the way you run a commercial program to to shift a lot of uh, long established organisations into that space further. Let's say, like you said, I'm sitting at my desk, I've got my sleeves rolled up, I'm bolt upright, working hard on my commercial program, but I think, you know what, we should explore some of these opportunities. How do commercial staff go and raise a prospect? like that with their partners who they think might be well suited to it? How do they start that conversation? Well, I think there's probably numerous ways to do it. I think the start point for most may be that, I mean, you could sit back and design this and say, we're going to now launch a team that focuses on traditional revenue, kind of build the team and then start testing the market with various offerings. Or it might happen a bit more... um, organically, I guess is the word, where you're naturally speaking to a sponsor or a partner, you're having, you know, weekly coffees, quarterly health checks, all that great stuff. 
And they say to you when you ask the open-ended question of, okay, so it's all going well. Is there anything else I could do for you? And I don't mean anything else in the contract. Is there something outside? What are your, what are your pain points? What are your challenges? And I think that those kind of open-ended questions often lead to more of a joint venture type of arrangement, which um, hopefully sits alongside the, ori- the original commercial partnership and supports it. Um, and then on the reporting back into the CEO or whoever it might be, you know, the person who's put that together is able to say, look, not only for our X number of dollars a year major partnership with this leading brand, not only are we getting the following feedback on a really regular basis, you know, they're delighted, they didn't like this, but we changed it, you know, we're working really proactively. But alongside, we've actually scoped, uh, for example, straight 50-50 um, revenue share on this um, new business opportunity, which we're going to put to our members and we're going to promote through our channels and they're going to provide all the expertise. Um, and we believe that over the course of three years, through initially awareness then an education, trust building through to sales conversion, that we'll see this business start to deliver X amount of dollars by this day. Yeah. And that's sort of proper forecast. So um, it's almost an impossible question to answer. Um, I would suspect more would come out of that, that latter approach of collaborating with existing partners. Um, but of course, you could go out and build a, you know, a, a collaboration type partnership or work with an organization specifically, you know, there are many organizations you'd love to work with and they'd love to work with you, but a, a sort of a major sponsorship fee is just not an option. Um, so there are often ways to say, okay, well, does this then maybe get steered towards a strategic partnership rather than a commercial partnership or sponsorship? And if so, what are the rules we put around that? Um, and of course, you then need to manage it accordingly because someone's not paying a fee for the traditional things, well, then you'll presume they shouldn't really get all that traditional exposure and brand. But if you're truly working together, maybe there would be a way of, of navigating it. So you you find that you have to work very hard, actually. You have a great idea. You want to build, build a new business. But then all the rules and process that governs it to actually make sure it works and fits and everyone's comfortable with it sitting alongside the more traditional partnerships, that that's a challenge and that takes a lot of thought and collaboration. I think we've gotten some great insight to how your mind works and how you approach your job and, and growing revenue <laughs> for the Sharks. Now you've, been, <laughs> now you've been in the role for some time. You obviously interact with commercial managers, particularly in the NRL and their sponsorship and, and partnership uh, staff from, you know, and maybe not just from the NRL, but other organisations pretty regularly, without throwing anyone under the bus, can you maybe contrast or compare your thinking and approach to how other, you know, commercial managers who might be more traditional and have always worked in sports administration, how contrast your thinking to theirs and your approach to their approaches? Um, so let me answer this one more by, um, sharing what others said rather than just sort of, you know, banging our own drum in any way. Of course. Um, so I often, I often say to people, I'm not interested in an arm wrestle. You know, I'm not, I'm not actually a a commercial manager. I'm not a salesperson. Uh, that's not, that's not really what I do. Um, I do, of course, do negotiations, um, 
But the key thing is always around that. Uh, the analogy I always use is uh, a set of scales. And if you're, Daniel, putting something on your side, well, I need to make sure that what I put on my side truly balances. Because if it doesn't, then that won't be a deal that lasts the renewal cycle. It may not even last past the, you know, the clause at the midpoint or after year one where we sit down and, and check. Actually, it's, um, it'll only get to the point whereby I've gone and told my manager in this example that this is fantastic, that they're only putting this in and I've managed to command this fee on our side. Wow, you must be a master negotiator. Mm. <laughs> but the reality is um, that the person that you know takes my chair in years to come um, will probably end up dealing with the consequences of that deal. So, for example, um, the brand doesn't want to renew because someone who's more ROI focused came in and said, why on earth did we ever sign this deal originally? And there's a lack of trust immediately. Trust, trust is shot before that person's even gone on board. So the sports organization is on the back foot. Uh, or on the flip side, um, the fee commanded um, was too high. Um, <laughs> you'll know the sort of way I say that because you think, wow, this is a, it's almost dangerous territory for someone to say, you know, who's on the sports side. Someone's like, be careful if the fee's too high. Well, why? Well, because if you can't deliver on what you've promised, um, again, it'll only be a short-term deal. So we really try and work on, on partnerships, uh, deals, sponsorships, etc. And I always think um, this needs to outlast all those currently in the organization. And hopefully there's those people there all the way through on a 10-year cycle or more to, to maintain those partnerships. Um, I think if you look like uh, a great example is something like Citibank with the Sydney Swans. I think they renewed at some point last year. I think they've been on for at least 10 years, probably more. Um, it's an iconic partnership. You, you think of the two, they go together, the way they activate is very smart. Uh, so you reward their customers through that. Um, I think that's a real benchmark kind of example. Um, and sure, there'll always be um, potential uplift in, in revenue that maybe the Swans would request, but I would imagine it's for the following reasons, X, Y, and Z, and how we can help new City to do more. Um, so yeah, I've probably probably sort of gone into slightly dangerous territory there, but <laughs> it's it's that set of scales and making sure it really balances. And if it doesn't, I don't think that the partnership would go past the first term. Oh, and and I a hundred percent agree with you. I've never thought about the partnership in terms of a a, a balancing act. I've always more traditionally looked at it that, you know, do we both get what we want out of it? But I think the scales analogy is a, an interesting one and a really, really powerful one that I think a lot of partnership and, and sponsorship and commercial um, professionals should keep in mind that, you know, is this is this balanced? Because I think, you know, as you rightly point out, it will help ensure longevity and success. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How do you keep up with what's happening in the partnership and sponsorship market? And I don't mean that in so much of uh, a way of, you know, this person signed a big deal with that brand, but more from a professional development point of view. Um, so plenty of reading, um, myself, but not just for my own benefit. So we've got a great 
kind of culture here of people reading a huge broad range of sources and then sharing. So if, if you sort of feel it, someone else needs to take two minutes over it. Um, you know, the email that comes around really ought to say, have a skim of this or you need three minutes to read this. These are the key things. And, you know, I've highlighted below what, what else to look out for or something like that. So it's quite directed and, you know, everyone's very busy. So if you can help your, your teammates or your colleagues out to find the specifics more quickly, then that's always welcome. Um, and within our organization, there's a really broad set of experience in different backgrounds. Um, and so naturally interests vary. And then naturally the sources of what people read, listen to, et cetera, vary. Um, I, I have a, not a long drive, but I'm, I'm in the car every day or most days. Um, and I, I really enjoy podcasts. Um, this morning on the way in, I listened to Eleni Salter's uh, Japan in Focus, which is an ABC Radio 1. Um, that gives more culture, business, economics, politics, and particularly focused on relations between Australia and Japan. Yeah, I think that one's really, really enjoyable. Um, I love Tracy Holmes's The Ticket which is, again, more focused on sport off the pitch and governance. She has some wonderful guests on there, and it's very thought-provoking. Um, publications from Sports Pro and Sports Business Insider. Um, and we work, we, we work and use, um, we work with, sorry, and use Prospector, um, particularly in the commercial team. I've got my reports set up to hit me with... Um, articles particularly around international business uh, and then also um, foundations pro bono and the charitable sector so that I stay abreast of some of the developments and things going on there in relation to which of course informs and is in relation to our Sharks Have Heart Foundation. Very good. Jonathan, awesome chat, really insightful. I, I enjoyed that. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about the Cronulla Sharks and the group, what can they do? Um, certainly give me a shout. LinkedIn's always always a good way. Um, there are two Jonathan Prossers in Australia. Uh, there's me, uh, who's got dark hair. And, and then, then the evil an one. Australian. No, no, he's definitely not evil. He's a good <laughs> guy. Um, amusingly, we were both at Accenture at one point, and he used to get all my emails. Um, <laughs> so the Australian Jonathan Prosser uh, has ginger hair and is much taller. So please direct everything <laughs> towards me. Um, otherwise, you'd, you'd probably get quite concerned by that. Um, so, yeah, link, LinkedIn, um, feel free to give me a message. Um, and if you're looking to connect, always helps just to say, you know, the reason why and all of that. I'm sure many people get hundreds of invites to connect, and the ones that you typically think to pick up on straight away are the people that say, you know, why and um, nice to meet you and a few, of course. <laughs> a few niceties along the way too. Yes. Uh, but thank you, Daniel. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Um, you tested me out on this, on this morning. So thank you. Jonathan Prosser, Group GM Strategy and Growth. Thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at the Cronulla Sharks Rugby League Football Club. A real pleasure. Thanks again, Daniel. Fantastic chat with Jonathan. It was great to get some insight into how he and his teams are, are going about securing the Sharks' future and diversifying income. Obviously, if you are looking to diversify income, then there was some great advice and examples, but I think there was plenty of learnings for everyone generally. If you want to get in touch with Jonathan, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or find out more about the Sharks at sharks.com.au. And all those links are in the show notes at sponsor.net. 
I'm going to be in New Zealand at the end of the month and the start of March. I'll be visiting Wellington, Hamilton and Auckland. So if you are tuning in from New Zealand, then why don't you get in touch? Let's get together and we can have a chat. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And of course, you can connect with Mark Thompson also on LinkedIn or you can email Mark using mark at sponserve.net. Also, don't be afraid just to get in contact, just to say hi and let us know where you're listening from anywhere in the world, because I'll be sure to give you a shout out in the next episode. It's always great to hear from our listeners. If you aren't already, be sure to subscribe to receive all our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponserve.net and fill in the subscription form and we'll deliver the content to your inbox each and every week. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. listening to the show for more episodes blogs and resources head to sponserve.net or search for sponserve on facebook twitter or linkedin